Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. They consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. In 1995, nope. she was offered... No. Nope. No, 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 no. In 1995, <laughs> I was five years old. And... <laughs> Hi, y'all. Welcome to She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. By popular demand, this season we're discussing business bosses and leaders. Yeah! Today, we're talking about Lillian G. Murad, one of the first women to graduate from chemical engineering in the United States, owner of a company that sold chemicals to the textile industry, and leader in her profession as the president of the Society of Women Engineers. Isn't that nice? <laughs> and I will also talk about Laura Ashley, the very famous and successful business owner and designer. What? Two people. The more the merrier. Let's go. <laughs> I love it. I'm Nargeri Rivas, studying and finishing applications in Houston, Texas. Hi, I'm Jessica Rogers. Just got a haircut and just finished visiting some family in Miami, Florida. And I'm Lizzie Rar. Just went on a very foggy hike and had some brunch in San Francisco. Yeah. Ooh, I like that. It was real good. Yeah, sounds yummy. Okay, so for a quick disclaimer, we are just aspiring architectural historians and women historical curators through podcast form. By no means are we perfect. So our facts might get a little crossed, but we're always looking for improvement. So if we mess up, let us know. Send us a comment or a note and we'll get better and we'll keep on learning. Yay. Wonderful. (laughs) Okay, time to start. The time was 1917. The place, Europe. Lillian G. Murad was born. (laughs) anything more specific than just europe that's quite broad (laughs) quite broad it's kind of like the smallest continent in just a year (laughs) you you did only a year and a whole continent i mean yes it's the smallest but there's a lot of countries 
Yeah, I mean, we know that things were happening during that time. <laughs> so, and in that place, as that opposed continent. to other times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know. World War One was ending, and was well, and it's in the middle. It's anyway true. Yeah, <laughs> things. But yeah, here we are. Well, that's where we're off to a vague start. But let's go. <laughs> Only one source mentioned that she was born on May 29th, 1917, and that the place she was born at was known as Tiflis, Russia, today Tbilisi, Georgia. So actually, let's go with that. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Yes, let's. I like that better. Mm -hmm. You know, I like my specifics. I like my geography. Yep. Yep. Things like that. I know. I know. You're right. Lillian's dad had a Ph.D. in chemical engineering from Moscow Institute of Technology, and her mother had an M.D. from Moscow University. Oh, engineering was a family trade. I see. And I love that her mom was a doctor. I love it. Yeah. Moscow. is. When Lillian was a little kid somewhere in Europe, she wanted to be a concert pianist and she went to the Conservatory of Music in Nice. Oh, Concert pianist. Okay, so she ends up in France at some point. We're placing her uh-huh. in the yep. vague <laughs> area of Europe. Okay. Yep. So, you know, Russia slash Georgia. Now she's in France. We can place her in France. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, I found that the school that she went to is actually pretty famous. It has its own Wikipedia page, which is how <laughs> I define fame. <laughs> and it has Quite a few well-known alumni, like the opera singer Freda Betty and the singer Carla Lara and the singer Carla Lazari, better known as Carla, a French singer and TV presenter. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so you're painting the picture. You're painting like... I'm painting a picture. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, well, yeah. where was Lillian Many Lillian years at? later. Yeah. <laughs> many years later, it's famous. <laughs> It's famous, but at the time, Maybe, it I'm was, sure it was famous then too. At the yes. time, yeah. yeah, yes, yes. I'm just giving you an idea of the people that get out of there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, back to Lillian. She meant business about being a pianist. At 16 years old, she got the Premier Prix de Piano, which was basically the highest honor she could get in school. Get it, Lillian? Tickle them ivories. Yeah. She was being amazing at the piano, but her family relocated them to New York in the 1930s. So that was a big change in her life. She still kept studying voice, dance, and dramatic arts from 1936 to 1942. Yeah, that's a huge change. A dramatic turn of events, but she kept keeping up with what she was interested in. So that's good. Right. Well, let me tell you that a few years later, in a surprise turn of events, Lillian was one of the first, if not the first woman to receive a Bachelor of Science degree in chemical engineering from Pratt University in New York in 1947. And a few years later, she received a graduate studies degree from NYU. That's a big change, though. Like, I mean, OK, I know that she was going to be an engineer at the start, but this is like what happened to the music and the concert pianist? I still have whiplash, even though I like knew it was coming. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I thought I was expecting something a little bit more uh, like gradual, like, you know, 
while she did piano, she studied engineering on the side or because like what <laughs> happened to the piano playing? Also, like on another note, I had no idea that Pratt had a chemical engineering program. Yeah, they have an engineering school. That makes sense. But chemical. well, I guess they're all kind of related chemical and not. You mean they're all engineering? <laughs> yeah, it's all engineering. I don't know. I just thought it'd be something different. I don't think of chemical engineering as artistic, but maybe I should have been thinking that oh, way. Oh, just you wait. Wait, let oh. me let me keep going. Ooh, okay. <laughs> I'm excited now. I mean, I was excited before, but I'm more excited now. In 1948, she won the Chemical Engineering Alumni Award. Yeah. Ooh, okay, very nice. Not long after graduating from Pratt, she became a junior engineer with Pacific Food Products, Inc. in Brooklyn. But her entrepreneur spirit could not be contained for long. So by 1949, she left and started her own company, Moratex Chemicals, which supplied chemicals to the textile industry. See, I feel like there's a connection going on right now between <laughs> chemical engineering, arts, Pratt. It's coming. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay, yeah. Spread your wings, Lillian. Mm-hmm. That is interesting. And maybe, yeah, she was able to work her Pratt connections. And I'm intrigued. While she had Muratex Chemicals, she was also working as the assistant manager and vice president of Murad Textile Print Works. And with God knows what time, she did freelance textile design as well. Doing all the things. I love it. So many things. But at the same time, not surprising she had so many balls in the air. I mean, it's very typical of our ladies, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, right. For sure. Especially this one that we can tell that has a lot of interest going on. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> this, I'm guessing, was where her inner artist came out, like we're discussing. Mm. where she was able to merge her engineering career and her artistic expression. Okay, I I get it now. You know, she still wanted to find her creative outlet. So, yes, makes sense. Indeed. From 1949 to 1951, she developed water-based pigment binders applicable to natural and synthetic fibers. Uh, what are binders? Like, in that case, I know what a binder is. I have some. Because, you know, papers. <laughs> but these are different. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> binders are the mechanism used to keep the color on the fabric when they're using pigments for printing textiles. So different binders were developed for the purpose of printing and other functions. And eventually they finally used water in oil and oil in water emulsions. Oh, OK, cool. Allegedly, the fad of gilded drapes, dresses, shoes, bags, and other goodies was totally thanks to her and this new technique. Hmm. Say what? So she's (laughs) responsible for the gilded age, would you say? I don't know about that. (laughs) Actually, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, we're like 50 years too late, but that's still really cool. That is cool. But to bring it back. okay, so we're in 2022. This year's Met Gala theme was the Gilded Age. So, well, when I started reading and researching about Lillian, I stumbled upon a research paper about chemical binding because I was interested in that as well. (laughs) And 
I started <laughs> learning about chemical binding elements in textiles. But the problem was that it was really scientific and I was going to have to read a lot to understand <laughs> what the heck I was reading. I didn't understand anything. And then, like, after understanding, I would have to figure out how to include that in the podcast. It was just going to be a lot. And it would end up spending like 40 hours researching for this episode for this lady. <laughs> and, you know, I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to cap the research. So yeah. I, I'm sorry, I won't be able to tell you more about chemical binding, but it's cool. And if you're interested, you should look it up. There's a lot of information out there. It's very scientific. I know, Judy, always going above and beyond. It's true. You love a rabbit hole, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm a recovering research addict. You're a recovering <laughs> research addict. Uh, I'm going to make this a social media post because offline, when we find ourselves going down these rabbit holes, we call it that we're chasing waterfalls. Waterfalls. Nerdity loves to chase waterfalls. Nerdity loves to chase waterfalls. It's from the hit. It's referencing the hit single from TLC. Don't go chasing waterfalls. <laughs> or maybe it's called waterfalls. I don't know. But there will be a social media post explaining. About waterfalls? <laughs> about why sometimes you shouldn't chase waterfalls. And sometimes it's okay. But in Najidi's case, she shouldn't. At least she's working on it. (laughs) Okay. So circling back to Lillian. Yes. Let me take you back to 1952, which was a really good year for Lillian. She was awarded the women's batch number 143 of Tau Beta Pi, which is the second oldest honor society in the United States. And only engineering honor society representing all of the engineering professions which is so many professions like engineering is huge yeah Hmm. it's so vast i just can't imagine how they represent all of them so i'll Mm -hmm. look into them a little more and we can do a charrette about this in the near future that's really impressive though that she got that yeah, go Lillian. And um, Nerjidi, you go ahead and research uh, the different engineering <laughs> go, uh, sectors. Yeah, chase chase know, that waterfall. Yeah, chase that okay. waterfall and, you know, just show how much of a recovering research addict you are. I'm picking my battles better. Okay, okay. <laughs> She's still in the recovery, you know, there's still... Yeah. Keyword, that's the keyword, recovery. She, relaps- recovery. she relapses sometimes. <laughs> I do, I slip sometimes. It's hard. It's hard. Well, like I was saying, 1952 was a big year for Lillian. She was also selected as the second president of the Society of Women Engineers, a.k.a. SWE. She was president from 1952 to 1953. Yeah, go Lillian. Okay, lady. According to her biography in the SWE website, in 1956, she started... Senini prints, an unusual application of water-based pigment prints on natural and synthetic fibers. No matter how much I looked into it, I just could not find further information or pictures of any of this. Unfortunately, I really, really wanted to see it. Yet, in my research, they mentioned that she designed textiles herself for furniture and was featured in Interior Design magazine. But again, I just can't find any pictures of that. So. You're going to have to believe me. Sad. I want to see the Mm -hmm. pictures, too. 
But that's yeah. really cool that she was featured for the designs. It sounds like, mm-hmm. you know, she received a claim for it, at least. Yeah. Oh, man, I wish we could see these. Right. So Lillian was a chemist, a business owner and a textile designer. But she never quite forgot her first passion, music and the performing arts. She kept her interest in music, theater and dance throughout her entire career. Mostly, she followed the Armenian theater and dance. And then she passed away in 2004. Dang, this girl's doing it all. I mean, I do like, though, that she held on to her early love of music and dance. Seems like she had a like two passions and she kind of figured out how to do both of them in certain ways. Yeah, like a good balance of like all of her interests, right? Yeah. But she did so much. I totally agree. And you know, if you were telling this story like uh, that Lillian lived during our lifetime, I would have thought she was a millennial, you know, like the slash generation, <laughs> as they refer to us sometimes because she was a chemist slash business owner slash textile designer slash uh, concert pianist slash <laughs> Russian, you know, just like all the things, just all the things. <laughs> all the things. Like I mentioned earlier today, I got really interested in textile design through researching Lillian. So I decided to talk about one more person today. Her name was Laura Ashley. She was a designer and business owner, and she was also a listener suggestion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. it. Listeners, send us your suggestions. We want to learn with you. Yes. Yes, do it. Help us. Help us help you. Okay, here we go. The time was September 7th, 1925. The place, Wales, United Kingdom. Laura Mountney was born. Wait, is this Laura Ashley, like the clothes, Laura Ashley clothes? Hmm. Yes, the one. But today you're going to learn that she didn't start making clothes. That wasn't what her business started doing. Oh. Oh. Okay, so yeah, to me, the name is definitely familiar but the work okay i totally get it it's so recognizable listeners just you'll you'll understand she was raised a strict baptist and she enjoyed going to chapel and listening to the singing so she has this musical bone in common with lillian g murad okay picking up what you're putting down i see the connections yep early musical influences okay okay mm-hmm mm-hmm She went to several different schools. Her family moved her around because of World War II. And at 16 years old, she joined the Women's Royal Naval Service, also known as RENS. You can do that at 16 and as a woman? Well, it's the Women's Royal Naval Service. Oh, well, yeah. But at 16? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is young, but I feel like they were just, you know, taking whoever they could get during the war, right? I mean, Uh, yeah. Yeah. And there were specific women's units of the various military branches. So the Women's Royal Navy Service was called the Wrens, like Nergidi said. And they started in 1917 during World War One, but they disbanded after the war and then were reinstated in 1939 for World War Two. The Wrens were cooks, clerks, wireless telegraphists, radar plotters, weapons analysts, range assessors, electricians, air mechanics, and a bunch of other things. And eventually they were integrated into the General Navy in 1993. Yeah, the Rens were real badass and so was Laura. During her service, she met engineer Bernard Ashley and 
Even after he was sent to India for work, they kept in touch, writing letters. It was super romantic. And then they got married in 1949. Cute. Oh, so cute. Okay, so could this have been an episode in our last season, a.k.a. the season where we did power couples? You know, I'm just I'm, I'm very curious to know what these letters were in, like but what were in these letters. So <laughs> but anyway, what's next? From 1945 to 1952, she was the secretary of the National Federation of Women's Institutes in London. From what I understood, these are charitable organizations all over the United Kingdom. And today, Queen Elizabeth is part of it, too. Ooh, Ooh, very interesting. Yeah, that's cool. While she was working for the Women's Institutes, she started quilting for them. It was something she used to do with her grandmother. Quilting! Yeah! <laughs> I didn't quilt with my grandma, though, to be clear. <laughs> I, I know, no, I'm just, you know, I have to shout out quilting because it's a side hobby for me. It's a really relaxing and creative outlet, and there's a big modern quilting movement around these days. Anyway. Mm, okay, daily quilter on IG, just saying it. You can see some of her work. <laughs> Lizzie's quilting work. Well, Laura with her grandma would quilt head scarves, napkins, table mats, tea towels, you know, mostly furnishings for the home. Mm-hmm. And then her husband started printing her designs onto the quilts with a machine he built to do that. Whoa. So it sounded like he basically built a screen printing machine with 10 pounds. He made the wood frame bought the dyes and the fabric. I was like really impressed with this guy. Yeah, wow. (laughs) It just sounded like something that Osman would do for me. Like I would Mm. say, oh, I think I'm going to start a podcast and he would go and buy me a microphone and soundproof the closet. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. So cute. Okay, talk about a support system. Yeah, that's really adorable. And Osman would 100% do that for you. I could also see my dad doing that for my mom. He'd be like, oh, you want, you need to buy, have something that's this big. And he would like measure it out and build it. That would 100% be something he would do. <laughs> I mean, yes, I can see that too. Mr. Dale's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so Laura says that what inspired her to start printing fabric was that she saw a display of traditional handicrafts from the Victoria and Albert Museum. And when she looked for small patches that had Victorian designs to help her make patchworks, she learned that those didn't even exist. So she was like, "Okay, then I'm gonna make it. (laughs) And she started printing Victorian style headscarves in 1953. Ah, yes. That's how a lot of things get started. We see a gap (laughs) and then we create it ourselves. Beautiful. Yep. I love her initiative. Let me tell you, ladies, the scarves were a hit. Mm. So both Laura and her husband quit their jobs and dedicated themselves to this quilt design and printing full time, selling their merchandise under the company Laura Ashley, and this is how Laura Ashley was born in mm. interior design. Bam. Interesting. I had no idea Laura Ashley was interior design before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it makes sense. And they were successful. Well, obviously, right? <laughs> we know who they are. Like, But 
they were successful in their lifetime. Mm. That doesn't always happen. Yes, right. True, true, true. First, they were mailing their orders to clients directly and selling to little shops. And by 1961, they opened their own shop in Wales. Love it. Oh, yeah. Of course they were successful. I mean, like we said, we know about them today, so they had to have been. And I love that they both quit and made the side hustle their main hustle. Like that's actually that's a very much today thing to do. I feel like, you know, yeah, actually, too, even this is so funny because even in like the I was talking about how there's this like big modern quilting like thing happening right now. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot of people where it's like I know of at least one where like the husband and wife both quit their jobs and now they have they run like a quilting business full time. Like so it's like. (laughs) It's just funny hearing like a a version of this, you know, however many years before. I like that today's episode is is very modern. <laughs> I didn't yeah. realize that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. So, uh, well, it just shows that even though we're talking about historical figures, they still relate to today. Yeah. Some right. way or yeah. another. So, OK, go ahead, girl. The Ashleys in their shop sold all sorts of things like locally produced honey, walking sticks, And of course, the Ashleys sold their quilts. Can't forget the quilts. (laughs) Laura and Bernard had the idea to hire a seamstress so Laura's patterns could start making it onto clothes. Mm. And the Laura Ashley store started selling smocks. Mm. Over the years, Laura expanded her designs and became a total fashion icon Laura's style is characterized as romantic English meets 19th century rural. That's so specific. Yeah, so specific. <laughs> um, I would love to get my hands on one of these smocks because they, you know, I just looked it up and they are very much on trend. Listeners, you know, to paint the visual, think very little house on the prairie, you know, <laughs> very cool. Yes, they're very, it's like very 80s boho vibes, like the type mm-hmm. of print. But then I think mm-hmm. they, they were like made into like dresses like Princess Diana was wearing Laura Ashley. Like that's I feel like why it's very mm. famous. Like icon. Oh, yeah. Icon. She, was, she was. Yeah. If I find a picture of them. Of Princess Diana. I'll put it on in, the show notes. In Laura Ashley. In Laura Ashley. Yeah. Ooh. And of the smocks. Yeah. Ooh. I mean, that's what I feel like. I just remember when we were younger, too. I feel like it was like very popular in the like late 80s, early 90s. Right. Laura Ashley was like. A thing. Laura and Bernard were a great team at work and at home. So they probably would have made a good power couple episode, but I just wanted to talk about them today. They both mm-hmm. shared responsibilities at their jobs and raising their four kids. <laughs> their kids grew up and took part in the business too. One of them would design the shops, the other photograph the spaces and the merchandise, the other were involved in fashion design it was just a family business Hmm. i love it cute their company became huge like we're talking about (laughs) to this day they are a household name in the fashion and interior design world they sold everything from dresses to wallpaper to Mm. ceramic tile you name it laura designed prints for it and they were able to reap the rewards of their huge success in their lifetime, which I really, really liked reading about. Mm. The Ashleys had a private plane, Uh-oh. a yacht, mm. homes in England, Brussels, and the Bahamas. Yes. Who would have liked that? Oh, yes. Okay. Love it. I love all of it. Okay, fancy. 
Okay, so I like that we can hopefully make this a part of our theme, right? Because we're talking about business owners and we're going to talk about successful business owners and we get to celebrate their rewards. We get to celebrate how they celebrate their accomplishments with these fancy boats and planes and trips and homes. Oh my, (laughs) I love it. Okay, also like four kids, that's a lot. And this is like a whole other level of a power couple, but I love it. Yeah, I mean, all of this is so impressive. Four kids is a lot. And, but it sounds like they did a good job, like making their personal and professional lives like come together in a way that worked really well for their family. And so it sounds like, you know, they were able to keep their kids involved so they could, you know, spend time with them and stuff. And obviously Mm -hmm. it worked because they became fancy people. (laughs) (laughs) fancy people in 1975 she was offered to become part of the order of the british empire oh and in a jane drew move she turned it down because (laughs) they didn't offer the same award to bernard and she thought it was only fair they both get it declining the queen (laughs) is that allowed i guess I have no idea, but she did it and it's sweet. I mean, yes. Yeah, it's true. That is sweet. And I appreciate that she wanted equal recognition for Bernard. But didn't Jane accept her OBE? She's a dame commander. I thought she you said like she turned <laughs> yeah, it down. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm, OK, mm-hmm. so Jane didn't decline the OBE. She okay. declined her life peerage, which would oh. have made her a noble because mm. Maxie wouldn't have been a noble. Ah, oh. that's right. One day she was visiting her kids and she fell down the stairs in her daughter's house. She passed away 10 days later of a brain hemorrhage on September 17, 1985. Wow, so sudden. I was not ready for that. Yeah. I know, it was pretty sad. In the research, it was sudden like that too, like, la-di-da, she's doing, living her best life, boom, she died. And I was like, oh my my gosh. gosh. Oh, wow. Well, guess this. After her death, Bernard was knighted. Okay, Bernard. Listen, listen. (laughs) She she declined the queen and she turned down the OBE for you, but you took it? Mm. Mm. Fine Mm. then. I mean, yeah, uh, I wasn't really happy with Bernard at this point, but I guess maybe he didn't want his family to turn down the queen twice. I don't know. I mean, I guess, but ugh. is there money? Maybe did they need more money? They had a lifestyle to keep no, up. I think it's just I think it's just an honor. Like, yeah. OK, maybe he thought like, well, she was offered it and she turned it down, but I don't want to turn it down. So, well, yeah, well, <laughs> in like, her she honor. Took it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. In her honor. Who knows? Maybe he told her, like, you should take this. And she's like, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Let's give Bernard the benefit. Sure, sure. Maybe it was in honor of her. In honor of her. That's what it was. Yeah. Let's say that. Also in honor of her, the family started the Laura Ashley Foundation to fund the arts and community welfare projects. Her legacy is to be forever remembered for her unique style and approach to interior design and fashion. Yeah. I mean, it really is. I knew who you were talking about as soon as you mentioned her. So obviously her legacy lives on. Yep, for sure. Well, I thought it was fitting to discuss her story alongside Lillian because they were two ladies with a long life creative passion, but got into interior design business kind of like in a roundabout journey. Yeah. You know, they didn't study textile or fabric design, but arrived at that industry and thrived. Yeah. 
I mean, both of these stories were really great. I also think that these stories were two great examples of successful business owners. And I mean, it's great that we can see their work and influence today for both of our ladies. So that's for sure. Awesome. Yeah, I really liked learning about both of them and how they influenced textiles and kept their businesses growing. And so So I landed the plane. You landed Mm -hmm. the plane. You landed the plane successfully. Yes. We'll allow it. (laughs) We'll allow it. (laughs) There's not going to be many pictures, if any, about Lillian on the show notes. I couldn't find pictures, but I'm really happy that we shared her story. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's a story that needed to get told somehow. And who knows? Maybe a listener will have pictures or know of a place to get them. Yeah, maybe. All right. It's Karyatid time. Take it away, Lizzie. All right. A karyatid is a stone carving of a woman that's used as a column or a pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek-style building. Each episode, we choose a karyatid, a woman who is working today, furthering the profession through her work, and who ties into the historical woman of our episode. This week's karyatid is... Paola Melendez Dominguez. Yeah, 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 yeah. Paola Melendez Dominguez is a Puerto Rican textile designer, owner of Paola Melendez Casa, which sells handcrafted textiles for interior designers. Growing up, she had a lot of different interests. She was class president and part of the debate team, but also from the time she was three years old, she wanted to be a fashion designer. In pursuit of this dream, she went to Parsons School of Design, not too far from Pratt. But Mm -hmm. while she was there, her passion did a bit of a U-turn, like all of our ladies today. (laughs) Paola fell in love with screen printing and fabric art. Ooh, plot twist. In 2019, she launched her company, Paola Melendez Casa, designing patterns and fabricating luxury interior fabrics. She's an artist. She starts out by hand painting every design, then that gets digitized and fabricated. She has one print that I cannot wait to figure out how I can make it fit in my home because I totally love it. It's called Painted Desert Big Rock. And when I see it on furniture, I want to buy every single chair that it's on. (laughs) That's so cool. I love that she like hand paints it all and whatnot. I can't wait to see more Mm -hmm. of her fabrics. I wonder if I can quilt with any of them. Maybe. But I love the Painted Desert Big Rock stuff. So and I just love hearing about her process. Mm hmm. Yeah. Full disclosure, I have to say Paola is one of my oldest friends. We met in elementary school. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is the Paola that I met in college. What? What? Just so that the listeners know. I know, I know. Brand new information. (laughs) This is brand new information. (laughs) I just have to say that I'm so proud of her and how her dreams have evolved and her strong passion and persevering starting her own company and all the things that she's doing. And how she's thriving. Yeah. I love hearing about how she's adapted and adjusted over the years and that we get to feature her. Yes. Okay. So, and Paola is also a fan of the show, but that did not influence why we chose her as a karyotid. Um, You know. (laughs) Not It really did not. No, it really did not. Because as a business owner, there's a lot to look 
up to when we look at Paola's business. I mean, she's our age and she's killing it. Um, We got to see a little bit of her process and how she does her hand drawn, hand painted designs and how it becomes fabrics and stuff. And, you know, she's a perfect caryatid for a season like this about business owners. Well, and for this episode. So and for this episode. Yeah. I encourage everyone to learn more about Paola Melendez Casa. You should follow them on Instagram and visit their website to fall for all of their designs. Go to our show notes to get all the links. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Before we say ta-ta for now, we want to say thank you to CMYK for the music, John W., our technical producer, and most of all, thanks to all of you for listening. We hope you enjoyed learning about Lillian, Laura, and Paola, along with our banter, and that you're inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. Again, thank you. All right. Y'all know She Builds Podcast is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicating to building a better world. So, you know, like some of our friends, like our homegirls at Practice Disrupted, you know, their Spaces podcast, The Goat, Entree Architect, and Context Clarity, our seasons on business owners. And a lot of these podcasts talks about running your own business. So check them out. Listen and subscribe to all of these shows and more that we just didn't mention because there's just so many and they're so awesome. Check them out at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L Media.com. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you've enjoyed it, please help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your textile designers, your clothing designers, your interior designers, all the designers. Your grandmas. Your grandmas. That's right. Chemical engineers. <laughs> your nanas and your memos. <laughs> Give us five stars on iTunes and on Spotify. Write us a review. This will all help us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us. We're excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuiltspodcast at gmail.com. Leave us a comment on our website, shebuiltspodcast.com, or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at shebuiltspodcast or on Twitter at shebuiltspod. TTFN. Bye. What is that? Ta-ta for now. Oh, (laughs) Bye. Yeah, that's right. No one puts Maxi in a corner. (laughs) Does that apply? I don't know. That's weird. Is that the right use of that? Probably (laughs) not. I didn't know. I I forgot. I I don't know, but sure, sure. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. 
Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.